The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. It is a thought that without the playhouse, without the bricks and mortars, there would have been no need for Shakespeare. Because they, they, if you have a fixed theatre, you need new material all the time. Yeah. If you're, if you're travelling around your audience, you don't need new material because it's a new audience every other night. That was Bernard Cornwell discussing his new historical novel set in Shakespearean London. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. For today's episode, we've spoken to Bernard Cornwell one of the world's best-known historical novelists, whose books include the Sharp and Last Kingdom series. For his latest novel, Fools and Mortals, Bernard has chosen to explore late Elizabethan London, setting his tale in the theatrical world that was then dominated by William Shakespeare. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met up with Bernard in London recently to find out more. So, Bernard, last time we spoke, they just finished filming The Last Kingdom, um, mm. and now you've embarked on a very different type of book. Um, where has the, the inspiration for this, for this new book come from? Well, I guess it's come from, from a little theatre in Massachusetts called the Monomoy Theatre, uh, which is on Cape Cod, and I appear in it every oh, summer okay. <laughs> for the last 11 years. And it's actually a, stu- it's a, a student theatre for, for drama students from all across America. Right. And they come and they put on a dozen, a do- well, eight plays in 12 weeks. And the grown-up parts are usually played by equity actors and the directors are equity um, or professionals. And, but somehow I got involved. And so okay. I've played Prospero and Henry IV and Toby Belch and 
lots of other parts. And I and got really fascinated by, by Shakespeare. I knew a little about him, obviously, mm. like I guess most people. Um, and the more that I acted, and I've done a lot more than Shakespeare, um, but we usually try and do one Shakespeare play a year. Um, I began to get interested in what was it actually like to put on a play in Shakespeare's time, and that's where this book came from. Okay, so it's set in the Elizabethan period. Yeah, it actually tells the story of the, I mean, a fictional story mm. of the very first production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which we think, we don't know, I mean, but there's a, a theory which is pretty plausible that it was actually first produced for an aristocratic wedding. Um, okay. Probably Lord Hunston, who was the Lord Chamberlain, who was Shakespeare's patron for his granddaughter. So almost certainly the very first production of A Midsummer Night's Dream was a private performance in, in Blackfriars. Okay, all right. Um, and what in particular fascinates you about this, this period of history? You mentioned Shakespeare. Well, it's, I, I mean, above everything, it's the beginning of a whole new profession. And before 1570s, there were no theatres in, in Britain. Uh, in strange thought, isn't it? It is a strange thought. I mean, there, there, were, there were actors, there were dramas, there were plays, but they were touring. Yeah. And, and the whole point is that if you, if you had you know, eight guys in a car, which have got you know, your props and your costumes <laughs> in it, uh, you would go from Warwick to Kenilworth to Stratford, and you could do the same play in every place because you knew it was a different audience. You moved the play from audience to audience. So you needed very, very few plays. Mm. You could probably get by on a repertoire of half a dozen plays. Uh, but then once in, in the 1570s, they build the first theatres in London, the playhouses. Now it's quite different because the audience is the same, night after night or day or rather, day after day after mm. day after day after day. And they want new material all the time. And we know from the records of, of for instance, the Hope Theatre that they did about 30 plays a year. And that's a lot of plays. Yeah. So if you don't have a fixed playhouse, if you don't have the bricks and mortars and the, the, the plaster and the timber, you don't get Shakespeare because he's not needed. But suddenly he is needed, along with Ben Johnson and, and Christopher Marlowe and, and all the rest of them, the kid and all the other mm. great, great playwrights who suddenly come into being in the 16th, 17th centuries. Um, so there's an excitement about a brand new profession, which it really is. It's a brand new profession, a brand new industry, yeah. which is you know, still going strong. The, the book's sort of told through um, Richard Shakespeare, mm. say William's younger brother. Yeah. Um, and there was actually a Richard Shakespeare, wasn't there? He's, there was a Richard Shakespeare, brother. yeah. Mm. There, are, there are three brothers, Edmund, Giles and Richard, and we know a little bit about Giles. We know a little bit more about Edmund, who's in fact buried in Southwark Cathedral, not far from where we're having this talk. <laughs> Uh, we know nothing about Richard no. at all. And if you're an historical novelist, it's wonderful to find a real character um, about, about whom nothing is known. I think there's one mention of him in a court document, which is fine 12 pence for not going to church or something. Yeah. But, but that's it. So his life is a complete blank. I mean, and the odds are he probably never left Stratford. We just don't know. Right. And, uh, but for me, he's a lovely character because uh, he's just sitting there on the shelf waiting to be used. Yeah. And where's his character come from? Is it someone you've been sort of thinking about for a while? Not or? really. I mean, in, in the sense I wanted to write a tale about, about what is it like to be in a professional Players Company in the very, very first years of the, of, of the profession. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you're probably going to choose Shakespeare's because, <laughs> let's face it, people have heard of Shakespeare. Um, and then I thought it would be interesting to use the brother because, uh, well, he's there and no yeah. one's ever, as far as I know, written about Richard Shakespeare before. Um, and if he did, it, I mean, it's possible he became a player, although I think it's unlikely. His other, one of the other brothers did, Edmund, Ned, okay. uh, became a player with Shakespeare almost certainly. Um, 
And if you're going to write about Shakespeare, I don't think you want him front and centre. He's, you know, one, it's very hubristic to write dialogue for Will Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> um, a bit frightening, wouldn't so it? So you keep him slightly at arm's length. Mm. And, and I have a certain enmity between the two brothers, which yes. is not unusual. No. Um, yeah. and, but, but nevertheless, we see the process through Richard's eyes and, and through Richard's ambition and so on. Yeah. Um, I mean, you say that you've acted many of Shakespeare's plays. What do you think um, Shakespeare's plays can tell us about the time in which they were written? Do you sort of bring that into the book as well? Well, I, I'm not sure they tell us that much about the times in which they were written. I mean, in, 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 in this play, there, there are, I mean, sorry, in this book, there are two plays, <laughs> which were both written between 1594 and 1595, which are Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet, you know, uh, one is set in Verona, Italy. Uh, the other is set in Athens. Mm. Um, although, of course, the mechanicals are English tradesmen, obviously. And in, in Peter Quince and the mechanicals, I mean, Bottom and Flute and, and the rest of them snug, uh, you're, you're getting a glimpse of, what, of how a play was put together. I mean, there, there's sort of arguments. Are, did they have a director? Have, what the rehearsal's like? We don't need to. Well, he tells us. Yeah. Shakespeare shows it right from the beginning, from the moment when Peter Quint says, he's all our company here and gives out the parts and tells them to learn their parts, <laughs> tells them where to meet to rehearse, tells them he's going to make a list of the props that they need. He actually says, I make a list of the properties such as our play needs. And then we see them meeting mm. and having a rehearsal. Um, so we know that this is Shakespeare telling us, look, this is how it's done. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, beyond that of daily life, no, he's, he's, that's not his business in that play. His, his business in that play is, is, is to show us a play being put together in a magical situation. Yeah. Um, okay. And what about you? Did you have to do a lot of research yes, into, yes. into life in Yes, yes, daily life. And then, and then you leave most of it out because you should do in most historical novels is leave it out. I mean, how do you choose what goes in? And what, what's Only if it's relevant. If it's not relevant, it, shouldn't, it doesn't belong. Um, it's as simple as that. I mean, yeah, you, I, 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 I'm going to name no names, but I mean, you do read historical novels where you, you can almost see the, the two-by-four card being copied. Yeah. Um, and and putting it, because we, well, we've discovered this. This is my research has discovered this. I've got to put it in the book. No, you it. don't. Mm. You know, you, you throw away 95% of the research. So we don't actually know an awful lot about William Shakespeare himself. I think we know more than people we let on. Okay. Um, I, I mean, we'd like, the, the, the frustration of William Shakespeare is we'd like to know a lot more. Yeah. Um, I, okay, there are things we don't know. We, uh, and there's quite a lot that we don't know. We don't always know where he lived. I mean, we know he was in Silver Street for a time and, and so on. We, but, and there are all sorts of mysteries about him. I mean, in this, in this book, you see, there's a scene in which William Shakespeare beats somebody up. And we say, well, come on, that, that's not Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare didn't... Yes, he did. Mm. I mean, within a year of the events that are described in the novel, he was bound over, had a restraining order put on him because he put it, according to the plaintiff, who won his case in front of the Surrey magistrates, uh, he feared for his life. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot we don't know about Shakespeare, but, but uh, equally, you know, there's an awful lot we don't know about Ben Johnson, about Andrew Marvel. I mean, these, but, but there's a surprising amount that we do know, and we're extraordinarily lucky. We have his plays, have his yeah. plays, his sonnets, his long, you know, the, the poems. We know of at least one lost play, Cardinio, but possibly two, but... And, yeah, we'd all love to know a lot more. I mean, you know, what was his relationship like with Anne Hathaway? Yeah, and, that's the big question. You know, who was yeah. a dark lady and mm. all the rest of it. But, but um, I think we know 
more. We, and we know quite a lot about his activities as a player. There's quite a lot of documents about the plays and the theatre. Yeah. And, and the arguments over the, the, for instance, the ownership of the theatre itself, mm. um, which is to blow up just after the events of the novel. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So it sounds like you've, you've, you've actually, you're bringing bits of his life into the book as well. So it's, it's Well, in a sense. I mean, it, it, it's, some of it is, is supposition. I mean, according mm. to John Aubrey, he was a school, I mean, Shakespeare was a schoolmaster in his youth. Uh, I accept that because Aubrey makes a point of saying that he got that from Mr. Beeston. Well, Mr. Beeston uh, was the son of Christopher Beeston, who was in Shakespeare's company. So, you know, there is a, there's a provenance there that, yeah. that, that, that this... Now, it's the only place where we're told that Shakespeare was had been a schoolmaster. Well, I accept that, and in a sort of flashback, you see him as a young schoolmaster trying to put on a, a play... Yeah. failing miserably <laughs> and then you know I know that there's people you know, there's, there's some reaction saying well why don't you have the years he spent in Lancashire because we don't know that he was in Lancashire you know yeah. I mean again it's another supposition um, it's grounded about as loosely as John Aubrey's mentioned in, um, and then other people saying well you know for goodness sake we all know that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare uh uh-uh, uh you know I mean it, it, there are so many mysteries about him that, that obviously everyone can have their point of view. Mm. And, and a lot of people I know are going to say, well, you've got it wrong because you have him writing plays. We all know it was De Vere, Earl of Oxford. No, it wasn't. It was William Shakespeare, but never mind. <laughs> yes, it's a, a lot ongoing debate, that one, mm-hmm. isn't it? Um, what's the sort of... Did you have approach this in a different way to writing your previous novels? Well, I guess you have to. I mean, the subject's so different, isn't it? Mm. Um... I mean, there's no big battles, obviously, in this. There's not. You're quite <laughs> right. There's no battles. And I'm not giving... I'm not spoiling this for anybody. Nobody dies. No. And there are fairies in it. On the whole, my books tend not to have fairies. Obviously, it must be a very different... Um, it's a quite a different style of writing, I guess. Or did you sort of apply the same sort of approach... I'm not sure of the different style. I mean, I, I, I decided to do it in the first person, do it in Richard's yeah. voice. 
And obviously because Richard is talking, I mean, you know, the opening of the book, sure, will strike people as totally different from my normal books because it describes the costume he's wearing. Yeah. And I can see people thinking, what the, you know? <laughs> um, but, but after that, he's telling a story. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm very bad at answering that. But people who've read it say, oh, my God, yes, I can tell you it's, it's a Cornwall book. So yeah. okay. <laughs> nobody dies. Uh, there's very little violence in it. I mean, there is some, but it's not, um, you know, the, on the other books, I must admit, are quite heavy on violence. This one is <laughs> very heavy on playing and acting. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, do you think, it, obviously you think it's important to have some sort of historical accuracy in, in your books? Is yeah. that one of the, challenge, the big challenges of writing historical fiction? Well, it's one of the pleasures of writing historical fiction. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons to read historical fiction, mm. is to think that it was, this is what it was like. And I don't think we ever get it wholly, completely no. right. I mean, it's almost impossible. But, but, but nevertheless, I, you know, what part of the excitement of writing this book was to think, yes, this is what it would have been like to have been in the Lord Chamberlain's men mm. putting on plays. Um, and because the process is actually not that different to today. Did that surprise you when you, when you were sort of doing it? Not really. I, I think there's, you know, there's probably only one real way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. And, and uh, I mean, of course there are differences. I mean, the technology is totally different. The discipline is probably a bit greater today, but who knows. Um, uh, but in the end, yeah, you, you, you come together as a company, you learn the lines, you rehearse, you re block it, which means you know you work out where on stage you're going to be, and then you perform it. Yeah, yeah, that's the, hasn't really changed. It much. hasn't really changed. Um, it's just the technology has changed and, and, and the surroundings have changed. Yeah. And, and there's also this extraordinary business, a, a really a, a brand new industry starts in the 1570s, 1580s, 1590s, and it is a brand new industry, which is the fixed theatre, the, you know, the, the theatre land. Um, and it springs to life almost fully formed, that, that uh, okay, we, as I said, the technology is going to change enormously, obviously, um, but not, you know, suddenly we have these wonderful plays, not just by Shakespeare, um, but plays by Ben Johnson, by Marv, which are still performed today. Yeah. And it, it's quite extraordinary that, that once that opportunity was given them, and it is a thought that without the Playhouse, without the Bricks and Mortars, there would have been no need for Shakespeare. Not even as a travelling player? No, no because they, they, if you have a fixed theatre, you need new material all the time. If yeah. you're, you're travelling around your audience... You don't need new material because it's a new audience every other night. Mm. So the same old play will do. Yeah. Um, and why spend money on another play if you if you can you know make your money in the inn yards in Warwickshire and everywhere else? Yeah. Uh, but once you build a playhouse, you need new material all the time, and it's quite extraordinary that the, the, this genius suddenly springs up out of nowhere and we still put his plays on. Yeah. And he has such royal favour as well. You know, he, was he had royal favour, which we know. Um, and in fact, because the city of London was, was governed by Puritans and they wouldn't allow the theatres inside the city and they did all they could to try and close them down. And in the end, of course, they were successful during the Civil War. Um, but they were helpless in the face of royal and aristocratic patronage. Mm. And although the theatres are, of course, aimed at every man, I mean, it would just cost a penny to go to the, to, to the theatre... Um, they still were summoned to the palaces to perform in private. Yeah. 
as I said, probably almost certainly the first performance of Midsummer was a private performance in an aristocratic house. After that, it would go on stage. Yeah. I mean, from your research, did you get a sense of um, Shakespeare as the kind of businessman? Yes, he he's a businessman. Mm. And a very, very successful businessman. Um, I mean, there was a lot of money to be made in the theatre yeah. if you got it right. And they were making money, and he did. Yeah. Well, yeah, look at the house he built for himself. In- it's a new house. And, and uh, he, you know, he bought a lot of land around Stratford and he was obviously going to and did retire there. And what is it, do you think, about the sort of the Tudors and the Elizabethans that makes them so, still so popular with readers and, and people, you know, on television I think, I films? I think it's the way that history is taught in Britain. They've all heard of them. You think that's, that's, that's it? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Elizabeth is a, is a, is a towering character and yeah. you know, Mary Queen of Scots. And, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on there. Big characters. And, yeah, they're big characters and uh, Henry VIII and, and so on. Um, I, I, that's my only guess, mm. um, to be honest. I mean, you know, if we we don't teach Stephen and Matilda that much, or Henry mm. the Second, or Henry the Third, but we once you get Henry the Eighth, it's whoopee. That was Bernard Cornwell. Fools and Mortals is out now in the UK, published by HarperCollins, and in the US it will be published next month by Deckel Edge. Now, before we go, I've got a quick favour to ask you. We're currently running a survey to find out more about your interests in history. And it would be fantastic if lots of our podcast listeners could take part. You'll find the survey at historyextra.com forward slash big history survey. And if you're one of our UK-based listeners, you could win a £100 Amazon voucher. OK, so that's about it for today. But please do listen in next Monday when we'll be talking to James C. Scott about early societies. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.